Well, we are in week two of a four-week series um, that we're calling I'm Not Fine. I'm Not Fine. Dealing with the, the subject of anxiety, depression, and the gospel. And I want you to know that it truly is okay to not be okay here. It's okay to not be okay. It's not okay to stay that way, right? God wants to walk with you through that and lead you out of that season. Um, but all of us are going to, to walk into and experience seasons where we're just not okay. And the church for far too long has been a place of pretending, a place of masks, a, take, a place of smiling handshakes when there was seething anger underneath. That's not the way of Christ. It's not what God's called His church to be. This morning we're going to be uh, looking at Psalm 29, Psalm chapter uh, 29. So I want to give you a minute if you've got your Bibles with you, or maybe you're uh, going to find uh, Psalm 29 on your mobile device. Give you a minute to do that. The words will be up on the screen as well. Um, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, ADAA, says that, that more than 40 million Americans suffer regularly from some form of clinically diagnosable depression or generalized anxiety disorder. And over 80% of the 40 million who are suffering the effects of anxiety and depression are receiving no treatment at all. They're not getting any help. They're not reaching out to anyone, whether it's a, a friend, a therapist, a pastor, a doctor. They're getting no treatment at all. And COVID has, has increased these. We talked about this. You know that. Common sense would tell you from many of your own experiences and the experiences of friends and family that the struggles with anxiety and with depression um, have risen over the last year. And what's interesting is COVID has physically disproportionately affected the older population in our nation and those with existing health conditions, but it has disproportionately affected, when it comes to mental health, younger generations. We're seeing doctors and nurses experiencing very high levels of burnout. We're beginning to see pastors and therapists experiencing higher levels of burnout than are normally associated with those vocations. We're seeing a, a whole host across the nation, a spectrum of low-wage workers who've been on the front lines anyway. We think about doctors and nurses. We don't think about the janitors at the hospitals. We don't think about the 7 or 8 or $10 an hour worker at a nursing home. We don't think about the 8 or $9 an hour worker at grocery stores and convenience stores and fast food drive throughs who've stayed open almost through this entire thing. And it's impacting them, children and teens, uh, in a, a, a vast number of school districts around the country that are still closed or only marginally open are suffering extreme issues with anxiety and depression from this disconnect, this separation from friends and rhythm and routines and the kinds of relational and intellectual and recreational stimulation that's needed for them and that they've been used to. Their parents are wrestling. Depression and anxiety rob you from peace, don't they? They steal from us the peace that God both makes available to us and desires for us to live in and to walk in. And I want to say again what we touched on last week, that uh, what we're meaning when we talk about depression and anxiety, right? Uh, when we talk about depression and anxiety, we're not talking about, you know, days where you're a little nervous or have some worry, or maybe a day or two where you're kind of down, but uh, a good peach cobbler with good vanilla ice cream would lift your spirits again, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, it's the, the kind of depression and anxiety that are characterized by two things, by one being out of your control, right? So maybe you go to the movies, that has no impact on it. 
Maybe you eat a good meal that has no impact on it. So on and so forth. It's beyond your control, and they have a negative impact on your daily life. So it's impacting and affecting the rhythms of your life on a daily basis. How and who you are at home, how and who you are at work, how and who you are in circles of friends. In fact, depression, for those of you that have walked through it, sometimes you're well into it before you even realize what's going on with you. Some of the, the, the best ways to understand that is to uh, allow people close to you to speak into your life. Maybe depression grabs a hold of you and all of a sudden you just find yourself wanting to live inside your house. Right? Ever, ever been there? You don't even know why, but you don't want to go out. You don't even want to open the blinds on sunny days. There's a sense of fear. There's a sense of foreboding. Like, I'm going to stay in here where I'm safe. I'm going to close the blinds. You're invited to go do things, and you say, oh, no, I can't, or you make up excuses. Maybe you don't even know why. You're not aware of what you're walking through. Friends call, and you just don't answer the calls. You don't even know why. But you're in that despair that depression brings. Well, I want us to look at Psalm 29. Psalm 29. We're especially going to look at verse 11 at verse 11 but i don't want to rip 11 from its context if we lit if we rip verse 11 out of the entire psalm then it looks like everything is about us and church nothing ever is all about us we are not the central players in anything god is the central player it's god that we glorify it's god who we look to it's god who is the chief hero of human history so let's begin and let's read. I'm going to read all the way through Psalm 29, a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly hosts. Some of your translations may say sons of El or sons of Elim or sons of Elohim, sons of God. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. So we, we start out with this call for heavenly beings to ascribe to the Lord of creation and redemption all of the glory and power and honor that is due His name to worship Him in the splendor of His holiness. And then in verses 3 through 9, we move into storm language. Language of danger that highlights in the danger God's power and His sovereignty and His goodness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars. Of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a wild young ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry, Glory. It's this picture of the power and the sovereignty of God over all the storms that we experience. That in the desert, God is there. On the mountaintops, like Lebanon and Syria or Hebron, God is there. In the forests, God is there. The voice of God is over the waters. And all of these places had symbolic importance. To the Hebrew people. They were domains in the cultures around them of the gods. They were domains of darkness. They were domains of chaos and fear. Yet the psalmist is saying even there God is present. God is in control. You may battle anxiety and you may battle depression. But I'll tell you God is still in control. He hasn't left you. Or walked away from you. In fact, he draws near to us as we struggle, as we wrestle, as we battle. 
verses 10 and 11, we see the result of this glory and goodness of God for his people. Verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. This is a picture reaching back to the flood of Noah, the the outpouring of the judgment of God. And even in the judgment of God, he sits above it and he is enthroned and in control as king. Verse 11, the Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Let's, Let's pray. God, give us new and fresh eyes to see your word. God, as we, as we turn in a minute to verses that will be um, familiar to many of us in this room, Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to receive them with a new sense of wonder and awe at who you are. God, interrupt us, awaken us. Cause our hearts to burn with desire and affection for you. God, lift our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances and place them on you. For you alone are our hope. God, do now with your word and your spoken message what only you can do. God, what human talent and human preparation cannot do. Father, change our lives. Don't let us walk out the same that we walked in. God, I ask this, and I ask it expectantly and confidently in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, look at verse 11 again. The Lord gives strength to his people. I want you to pay attention to the the language there, the language of gift again. God gives strength to his people. Now, we as Americans love strength. We love power. And we look for it in all kinds of different places. We hope to receive it from all kinds of different sources. We look down on those consciously or subconsciously that we feel like don't have power, don't have authority. We don't bring them to the table and ask their opinion. We feel like if their opinion was very valid, they would have achieved some higher sense of power or authority across their lives. But Scripture says that the Lord gives strength to His people. Anybody in here this morning that just needs some strength from the Lord right now? Anybody here that if you were honest, you would just say, I'm exhausted emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically. I've cried my tears. I need this gift of strength that the Lord gives. The Lord blesses His people with peace. So He gifts us with strength and He blesses us with peace. See, promises only matter if we understand the character and can trust the character of the one making the promises. This tender, generous language of verse 11 is set in the context of verses 1 through 10 that makes very clear that God is the God who can do what He says He will do. Can do what He says He will do. Anyone have maybe a family member or friend that from time to time needs to to borrow money? Uh, The word borrow implies what? Repayment. Right, repayment. And, and they come to you and they're like, look, look, all, all I, I need $200, and I promise, I mean, when I get paid next whenever, man, you're going to be the first one I pay. And maybe in your grace you give them the $200, but you know their character. And you know that will never make its way back to you, no matter how much they intend it to do so. Well, part of what David wants us to understand in Psalm 29 is God doesn't make idle promises. God doesn't say he gifts his people with something that he's unwilling or unable to gift them with. He doesn't say that he blesses his people with peace if he's unable or unwilling to do so. He's the God who gifts. He's the God who blesses. Now listen, he does this for his people, right? For his people. 
Some of you in here this morning, the great struggle that you're going to have is you're going to walk out of here. Maybe you're in this season right now where you're, you're trying to, to claim things from God and you're asking things from God, but you've never given your life to God. It doesn't work that way. He's not a genie in a bottle that you can rub from time to time and he'll pop out a wish for you. God gives strength to his people. God blesses his people with peace. Some of you this morning, the greatest thing you could do would be finally stop running from God and say, I surrender. I surrender all, God. All that I am, all that I've been, all that I've done, all that I hope to do. I repent of my sin. I turn from it with your help. Forgive me. Lord Jesus, come, be my Lord, be my master, be my king. From this day on, I belong to you. Some of you, that's all you need to do this morning. Because none of the rest of it matters. As long as you're still pushing God back. As long as you're still trying to be your own God. But I'll say for his people, just as we read, there's no storm that you'll walk through that God doesn't stand over in glory and power and goodness. But sometimes it doesn't feel that way, does it? No, it doesn't. Sometimes you've walked and you've prayed and you've walked and you've prayed and you've walked and you've prayed and God just seems to be silent. Ever been there? Some of you are there this morning. He may seem to be silent, but never confuse silence with a lack of presence. God doesn't leave his people. He doesn't withdraw. I want to ask you this morning as we, as we continue here, what, what are you trying to handle in your own strength this morning? What is it you're trying to walk through? And you're trying to handle it through will, through logic, through reason. You're trying to list it out here and list it out there. What is it that you're trying to handle in your own strength? Where do you need God's strength? That the psalmist says he gifts to his people. Where do you need God's peace this morning? What issue or issues do you need to release in this place right now before we leave to God and rest in the peace that he blesses his people with and be able to move on saying, God, I trust your goodness. I trust your sufficiency. I trust, this one's hard, are you ready? I trust your timing. I trust your timing with this situation, with this person, with this reality in my life. I trust your person, I trust your timing. Now what I want to do is I want to make a shift and say, in light of the fact that verse 11 tells us, quite clearly that the Lord gives strength to his people and blesses his people with peace, what is it that we can do? What is it that we can do to make room for the peace of God in our lives? Because I will tell you, some of us are flat out running the peace that God gives. Not that he can't catch up to us, right? But when we know better, he may just let us run out there until we run ourselves down. Some of you are outrunning the peace of God. You're not making space in your life. You can't generate God's peace, but you can certainly position yourself better to receive it. Let's talk through just a few things. I want to give you three spiritual disciplines that I think make room for the peace of God and one practical discipline. Now, the spiritual disciplines are practical as well. I simply called them spiritual and the one practical because I couldn't think of a better word. I tried, but I couldn't. So three spiritual disciplines and one practical one that I think make peace for, or that make room for the peace that God says he blesses his people with. That make room for the strength that he gifts his people. And I would just say, if you're saying, hey, you mean, it sounds like you're saying we have something to, to do with this and, and we have to make room for our peace. I'd say yes. How many believers have you seen not living in the peace of God? 
though time and time and time again, it permeates the Old and the New Testaments that God gives peace to his people. God makes peace available to his people. But we've got to surrender to it. We've got to walk in it. We've got to accept it. The first spiritual discipline is simply this. You've got to feast on God's word. You've got to feast on God's word. Because depression and anxiety are liars. Depression and anxiety distort your reality day in and day out. Depression and anxiety whisper to you constantly things that are not true. And you've got to feast on God's word so that you can preach the gospel to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that you are the most important person in your life when it comes to your spiritual formation because you are the one who talks to you the most. You need to be telling truth to yourself because your feelings, your emotions don't have brains. There's no intellect or reason there. So you need to feast on God's word. When you look at Psalm 29 and you look at the wording and the phrases, it's very clear that the psalmist that David here had the entire word of God in his mind as he was writing. He was reaching back and looking around at how God has moved in the life of his people and remembering who God is. Turn back if you, if you uh, have your Bible open physically, just a couple of pages to Psalm 18. Psalm 18, and you'll find this in verse 30. Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, His way is perfect. His way is what? Perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. The Lord's word is what? Flawless. That's right. He shields all who take refuge in Him. I don't, I don't know the last time that you really... This verse is challenging. You know that every time you and I sin, we do so because we don't believe God's way is perfect? We do so in that moment because we believe that what we're saying or what we're doing or what we're refusing to say or we're refusing to do or to set our hearts on is better than God's way. Every single time. It's because we're trusting that what we want to do will lead us deeper into joy and deeper into the life that we yearn for than God's way is. But God's word says that his way is perfect. It's perfect. In other words, it cannot be improved upon. And that would include, as utterly frustrating as it is, his timing. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. Flawless. Which means no matter how much you examine it, no matter how much it's debated or picked apart, there will be found in it no error. It is flawless, without flaw. Uh, any of you ever thought you were looking pretty good and then you saw yourself in, in one of those mirrors that, that brings you close? You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you're like, man, I look pretty good. You flip it to the other side, and you're like, or, or possibly not, right? Any of you ever uh, thought, you know, I probably look pretty good, and then you saw a picture of you taking someone, and you're like, whoa, you know? I was like that about a year ago, and Sharon was like, baby, people already know you look like that. Like, we see that all the time. Like, man, you know, but I, it's motivation when you see it. But no matter how much you feast on God's word, in fact, the more that you feast on it, the more your conviction and your confidence in the flawlessness of its nature will grow. We are vastly biblically illiterate people now. And we are hurting for it. We are malnourished. We are weak and we are blown about feast on God's word. Second, remain in prayer. Now, for some of you, this is very easy. For others of you, this is easy to say. Like, well, this is not hard. Feast on God's word, remain in prayer. That's old school. It's old school, but we drift from it all the time. 
remain in prayer. Some of you will know the, the lines of the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Anybody familiar with this? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. i got to read it, so they'll say where I am. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Everything to God in prayer. We do needlessly carry burdens. John 14, 27, as John was preparing his disciples for his coming crucifixion, he says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Hear the gift language again? I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Do, do you understand the complexity of this relationship between what Jesus gives us and, and uh, the, the admonition we have to, to not let our hearts be troubled and to not be afraid that we're receiving what Jesus gives us and we're actively choosing not to let our hearts be troubled what would it be like to say i will not worry about this sometimes you've got to speak your way into belief i will not worry friends that's what faith looks like faith is saying i don't understand and i don't feel it but i know this to be true that i serve a god who is never shaken I serve a God who loves me, I serve a God who holds me, and I serve a God who will make my path straight. So I will not worry. Now, if you're joining us this morning for the first time, I'm not saying that you may not have to say, if you're in the pit of a battle with anxiety or depression, I will not worry, and you feast on God's word, and you remain in prayer, and you see your therapist, and you see your doctor. All right? So don't hear me saying more than I am at this point, but we need to be people of prayer. We're called to it. We are given this tremendous gift. Do you understand what, a, what a, an awesome privilege it is that we can approach the creator, God of the universe, who keeps everything spinning at just the right speed, at just the right tilt, in just the right orbit, simply by the power of his voice. And we can freely come into his presence. I think sometimes when we threw out a bunch of the, the, the legalism and the trappings of tradition and legalism, we also threw out a bunch of the, the awe and the wonder. Partly because we couldn't tell the difference. We couldn't tell the difference. 1 Peter 1, 7, uh, 1 Peter 5, 7, I'm sorry, many of you will know. In, a, in a, a number of verses here, I'm going to start with 6, even though it's not on the screen. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You know one of the chief ways that you cast all your anxieties on Jesus? Is you pray. You pray. And you let it go. And you move on. So you feast on God's word. You remain in prayer. Third spiritual discipline is you start serving somewhere. One of the greatest things you can do if you're being paralyzed by depression or anxiety or they're driving the train is for you to get yourself centered on God and then get moving even if you don't feel like it, especially if you don't feel like it. Volunteer. You have ministry gifts, if you're a follower of Jesus, that have been given to you by the Holy Spirit for His glory and for the good of His church and the community around us. For the good of His church and the community around us. Ephesians chapter 2 is a, a much-loved chapter in the lives of believers and of the church. It teaches us that we've been saved by grace through faith. And that faith, that ability to believe, is itself a gift from God so that none of us could boast that we played any part in our salvation or redemption. But Paul goes on, and in Ephesians 2, verse 10, he says that we don't boast in it. 
Because we can't do anything by our works. But he says, for we are, we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, these good works don't just mean feeding this person or giving this person clothes. Anyone can do that. There's a spiritual nature to what Paul is saying here. He's saying that you and I have been gifted uniquely by the Spirit to serve one another and the world around us in ways that glorify Christ and lead people into redemption and toward both holiness and wholeness. The truth of the gospel is that God doesn't just intend the gospel to make us holy, but to make us whole. To bind up the wounds and to put back together the broken places that we live with. And when you're not serving, I'll tell you, I mean, a quick way, um, just a, a side plug here, a quick way, if you're not used to serving or maybe you haven't volunteered, you haven't done ministry in a while, sign up uh, and come to the, the We Serve gathering next week as we look at Easter. All you're saying is, man, I, I want to serve that Sunday morning. I want to be put on a ministry team so that we can be part of what God's doing on Easter. That's an easy way. But when you're trying to live as a believer and you're not serving, that's pretty good. I didn't, even, I didn't know they were going to do that because they didn't know I was going to say that. So um, you're not serving. You're just not, you're not moving right. You're not living, walking as God intended you to be. Now, you may be, uh, you may be one of our online viewers. You're like, man, I can't get out and I can't do things. We talked about this weeks ago. Write letters. Give generously. Pray for people. Those are acts of service. But if you can get out, if you're moving, man, God's calling you to serve. This is one of the ways that you make room for peace in your life. You serve, you volunteer, and you do it with Christ at the center. You do it seeking to know him, to love him, to be loved by him, to serve others in his name, to glorify him, and because you were made for it. Several years ago, Sharon and I got an opportunity to go on a date. Every once in a while, I'll meet like young married couples, and they feel like if they don't have a weekly date night, their marriage will fall apart. I just think, just wait, right? Because kids will solve that problem. Um, but we got an opportunity to go out, and we went to uh, uh, like a theater draft house where they would bring the meals to you, and you could watch a movie. We watched a movie, and then we got out, and we were going to go to Target. And I had just I had sold my truck and gotten a little like commuter car, um, and I hadn't had it very long. It just wasn't running right. It's like if I got up to any speed at all, the front end started shaking that night. And I was so aggravated. Like, I had just gotten this car. It's like, dang it. So I pulled over in the parking lot of Target. I got out. I was looking at everything. I was so frustrated. Should have kept my truck. Um, just made this decision. Maybe now it's going to affect my family. I, I get back in, and I'm just looking around, and Sharon said, well, maybe I, I noticed you've got the parking brake on. So maybe if you take that off, it'll drive better. And she was right. Because the car wasn't designed to drive with the parking brake on. And I'm telling you, followers of Jesus, you've not been created to live without serving. To live without being caught up into the ministry of Christ. That Paul says God has prepared beforehand that you would walk in. Right? So those three spiritual disciplines, feasting on God's word, being regularly in prayer, and serving, serving consistently, they make room for the peace of God in your life because they help reorient you away from yourself and back to God. Now, let me give you a practical discipline that, that we rarely ever, ever talk about in the church, but it's significant. And it's simply this. You and I need to clear out clutter from our lives we need to clear out clutter from our lives you need to clear out clutter from your life some of you will remember from Matthew chapter 13 there's a parable of a sower that Jesus tells this sower is going along and he's throwing out seed he's casting out seed and this seed is this picture of the word of God coming and falling on human hearts and into human lives and some of it falls on this kind of soil and some of it falls on that kind of soil and some of it falls on soil and takes root and begins to grow 
but that particular soil is full of thorns and weeds. And they choke out that tiny plant as it's growing. And it's this picture of clutter and busyness in our lives. Giving ourselves all kinds of things and having all kinds of things around us all the time. Where the life that God's called us to and made possible for us isn't able to take root. There's something called psychosomatic unity. Psychosomatic unity. And what psychosomatic unity reminds us of and speaks to us about is the fact that we are one whole being. Often I'll hear people talk about the soul as if it's sort of a spot behind the liver. But friends, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You are a living soul. Mind and body, emotion and spirit, these things are all connected together. They're all connected together. Uh, an article caught my eye some months back written by a UCLA psychologist called Why Clutter Causes Stress and Intensifies Depression. Why Clutter Causes Stress and Intensifies Depression. And throughout the article, sometimes they'll, they'll exchange stress with anxiety. As she, as she went through the article, this psychologist, she listed four things, four reasons. She said, clutter bombards our minds with excessive stimuli. Ever, ever realize that? Ever try to work on something in a space that's full of clutter? And you have to either clean it or change spaces? Your brain is a magnificent, miraculous organ that misses almost nothing. Almost nothing. Second reason why clutter stresses us out and intensifies depression is that it distracts us from fully functioning in the moment. This manna principle that God lays out in Exodus, that he will take care of us, but he'll only do it one day at a time. One day at a time. When we live with all kinds of clutter in our life, it robs us, it distracts us from being able to be fully in the moment. Because our brain is taking in all of the stimuli around us Reminding us of what's not been done, of what should be done, of who needs what. Number three, makes it difficult to relax both physically and mentally. We're made to stress and release, stress and release. That's how we grow. I, like, I have a problem with boxes. When I get stressed out and there's clutter everywhere, I find a good-sized box and I just clean everything up. I just put it into a box and I put a lid on it. And the first few years that Sharon and I were married as we moved, sometimes I even moved the boxes with us. Because in my mind, I'm going to clean that out, right? I'm just a day or two away from cleaning that out. And I remember moving with one so many times, I just threw it in a dumpster one day without even looking in it. Because I thought, we're, you know, we're living three places from where I created the box. I started that in college with an apartment. I'd be like, the fastest way to get it clean where it's functional, just put it all in a box. It doesn't take that long. Maybe you've got your own issues. Fourth and final, um, reason that clutter causes stress and anxiety and intensifies depression is that it creates feelings of guilt and exhaustion. Uh, this study said that this is especially true among wives and moms with regard to looking around their house. That, uh, that There's a realization that clutter is simply unmade decisions. But there are so many unmade decisions that it feels like a mental overload to deal with and creates feelings of guilt and exhaustion. Neuroscientists at Princeton, that sounds like a fun group, doesn't it? Like a group you'd like to go to lunch with? They looked at, at clutter in the workplace and found a direct link between increased clutter and poor job performance. And they said this, that physical clutter resulted in decreased performance and increased levels of anxiety and stress. Now, why not I tell you all of this in a biblical sermon? Hopefully centered on the gospel. I tell you this because all this is is science uncovering truths about how God has wired human beings to function in creation. That God is a God of order and not disorder. Clutter affects us in significant ways. And I want to encourage you, some of you right now today, some of the best things that you could do, that you have control over, is around this topic. Just clear out some clutter. Maybe it's physical clutter. Maybe you need to leave here sometime today, you need to clean out your car. You need to clean out that closet. You need to clean out that drawer in the kitchen. You need to clean out that office space 
at home. And some of you are picturing a space right now. And I saw some of your spouses picture a space for you. And remind you, clear out that physical clutter. It does affect you. God has wired our eyes and our brains so that we take in all this and we process. Maybe it's financial clutter. Maybe you need to pay some small bills that are just laying around. And they've just kind of piled up. Maybe you need to audit your statement in a world where we pay so much electronically. We pay so much through apps. We pay much, so much through auto pay. You'd be surprised if you took two or three months of your statements and just went through your bank account at what you're like, I don't use that anymore. And they've upgraded me to a premium subscription, right? It's $15. It's $9.99. It's uh, $29.99 here and there. Maybe you need to clean some of that out, cancel things you no longer need, renegotiate services that you want to keep. Maybe you need to sell some stuff. That's a beautiful thing. Clean out physical clutter and then sell it and make yourself some money. Some of you ought to sign up for FPU, Financial Peace University. You're like, man, if, it, if there's any kind of clutter that's creating anxiety and intensifying my depression, it's, it's financial clutter. Let Dave Ramsey and others who are walking through the same thing walk with you to the other side of this. Maybe it's emotional clutter. Can I just say this with, with all candor and honesty? Some of you... This morning, you have people that you need to cut out of your, of your life. They do not need to be in the circle of people that you interact with and run with regularly because they are harmful for your well-being, for your mind and your spirit. Some of you, you don't have people you need to cut out, but you need to erect some boundaries with a family member, with a friend. Some boundaries that allow you to receive the peace that God's calling you to walk in as a witness to the world of who he is and what he can do in the lives of human beings. Maybe you have some notes you need to write, phone calls you need to make. These are little things, right? Sometimes you're driving and God prompts you and says, hey man, you need to just call this friend and check in on him. I mean, anybody experience this other than me? Or you think, gosh, I need to write a thank you note for this, or I need to do, that stuff piles up, your mind doesn't forget it. I know it, so temporarily your brain forgets it, but it just moves from the front to the back maybe there's forgiveness you need to give and maybe it doesn't need to be a whole big conversation it just needs to be you with God saying God I forgive them and I'm going on with my life now I trust you as the one who is just and good and right one of the new ones that that actually books are being written on right now is digital clutter Let's do this just uh, as a way of engagement and interaction. How many, of you have, how many of you in here have at least one email address? Some of you don't want to play. That's fine. Um, how many of you have at least two? I'm going to leave my hand up. How many of you have at least three? How many of you have four or more email addresses? Yeah, yeah there's still a number of us. Four or more email addresses. Who can keep up with that? I know I got a school one, work one, personal one, two school ones actually. Yeah. There's a ton of digital clutter in our lives. The number of emails you get, social media um, requests, direct messages, texts. This stuff is digital clutter. Take your phone and clean out your apps. Get rid of the ones you don't need. My son told me this morning, Cade was looking at his notifications page, and he said he gets an average of 220 notifications a day. I was like, little son, you got to turn the notifications off. Some of you need to take your work email off your phone. Some of you can't, I know that. But some of you who can, should. Of course, Cade also forgot to dress for school until he was at school on Thursday. I asked him if I could share that. He said yes. So I think maybe there is a connection between the two. Sharon called me and she said, hey, I need you to go up to Cade's room, grab this, grab that. And I said, why? And she said, he forgot to get dressed. I said, I don't, I don't understand. And she said, he just has his soccer shorts and a sweatshirt on, nothing underneath, like his sweatshirt, and he's not dressed for school. I don't under, she said, it just, look, it is what it is. So, <laughs> so he had gotten up, brushed his teeth, done the breakfast thing, got his books together, got his backpack in, got out, got in the van, headed to school. Then it dawns on him once he gets there, I, I don't have any school clothes on. So she had to bring him back home so he could dress himself. This is digital clutter, guys. 
And can I just say one more thing with, with all seriousness? Don't feel guilty about not instantly responding to everyone who reaches out to you by text, by message. We live in an instant world, but that does not require an instant reply from you. You can't live, and some of you expect that, and you ought to knock it off. You text somebody, and like three minutes later, you're starting to get mad. Can I just say, like, in love, grow up, right? Maybe they haven't seen it. Maybe they actually chose that day to go to the bathroom without their phone. You know, and so they're in the restroom, phone free. And maybe they don't know what to do. They're confused right now. Somebody else's self-esteem and security can't, can't be at the mercy of how fast you reply to them. Right? This stuff is unhealthy for us. I'm going to leave you with the words of Jesus. Because what David writes about in the psalm, when he says that God gifts his people with strength and he gives peace to his people, that's only possible through Jesus Christ. And in this passage that so many of you know, but it is so rarely lived out by us, Jesus says in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through 30, he says, Come to me, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Isn't rest a beautiful word? I will give you rest. Take my yoke. This yoke he's talking about is simply his teaching, his way of life. Take on the way of Christ. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was broken so that you and I could be made whole. Jesus was cast out so that you and I could be granted access through him to the presence of God now and throughout eternity. Jesus experienced the agony of separation on the cross from God so that you and I could experience union with God through Jesus Christ. He makes all this possible. In just a minute, we're going to have a time of response. Um, as we sing together, it is well with my soul. As we begin to sing that, we're going to open the, the front here and just invite you to come down to kneel and to pray. Some of you need to come up here just as a symbolic way of saying, I'm coming right before you, God, just you and me. And I want to cast this off. I want to cast this anxiety onto you, Jesus, because I know that you care for me. Horatio Spafford and his wife Anna lived in Chicago in the mid-late 1800s. And Horatio was a successful businessman and lawyer. Um, they had five children, a, a young son who died in 1871 of pneumonia, left them four daughters. And then the great fire, the great fire of Chicago in 1871, wiped out most of Horatio's business interests. They had recovered by the goodness of God, and in 1873, he just decided that he and his family would, would go to Europe, spend a little time vacationing, and just catch their breath. Just be able to be renewed and restored. They were devout followers of Jesus, very active in their church there. Um, his wife, Anna, and their four daughters boarded a ship. Horatio ended up having to stay back and tend to some last-minute business things, and then he was going to catch a ship in three or four days and follow them uh, as they went to Europe. And on November 21st, 1873, Anna and her four daughters were headed to Europe on a French ocean liner. Four days into their journey, their French ocean liner collided with a Scottish ship, the Lockern. The Lockern had an iron hull that crushed a gaping hole into their French ocean liner. And it began to sink. Anna got her four girls, their four girls, up on the top deck. And she gathered them around and they knelt and she prayed. And she prayed that God would save them from this calamity if it were his will. And if not, 
that he would make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. Within 12 minutes, the entire ship had slipped beneath the surface of the dark Atlantic. And with it, their four daughters, who all drowned. Anna miraculously somehow survived, was picked up later on by a a rescue rowboat as she was floating on wreckage. Nine days passed before she could wire word back to Horatio. The news of the collision and the sinking had had already made its way to the States. She wired back a, a note that started with this line. Saved alone, what shall I do? 226 of the 313 passengers on that liner that day sank with it to the bottom of the Atlantic. Horatio, in, in grief and trauma and pain, boarded the next ship he could, headed back across the Atlantic to be with Anna. Four days in, the captain called him to his cabin and let him know that they were sailing over the spot where that ocean liner a couple of weeks before had collided with the Scottish ship and sank, and this is where his daughters lost their lives. Horatio went up on top and looked out across the waters as they crossed that space, and he began to think about God, and he began to write, and he penned on that voyage the great words to it is well with my soul. God would go on to grant them more children. They would lose yet another one. But they, in depression and pain over the next few years, allowed the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to form them and to trust in his character when they didn't understand the answer to the question, why? That's my hope for you this morning. Let's stand and as we sing this great hymn that has strengthened believers for decades and decades and decades and decades, I hope you'll understand the agony and the tragedy and the pain with which it was birthed. And I hope some of you will make your way up front, will kneel down, and will just do business with God and receive from Him the strength and the peace that He gives His people. Let's pray.